Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring tales to terrify and the all-new far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello, and welcome to show 441. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Well, have you seen the news over here? <laughs> the UK is imploding. Yes, no, the Starship Sova's going strong there, still firing, still surviving the c- catastrophe that's happening, the fallout from leaving the EU or announcing our EU leaving. Oh, man, has anybody been... I don't know if it's, if it's making much news. I think it is around the world. Man, it's just... It's, comp- for me, compulsive viewing. Do you know what I mean? It's just happening. Things are just happening so quick. Things we'd never see in our day. You know what I mean? Never. Just, especially my, you know, political party, brought up Labour Party, Labour man... It's imploding. It's just like, man, we are kind of just, it's, this could be the end of the Labour Party. You know, the way they're kind of going on. And I'm, you know, I'm not ranting and raving about politics, but the guy in charge just has to go. Do you know what I mean? Just, just step aside for the sake of the, the movement. Do you know what I mean? Just step aside. Let's get someone. Let's just try and sort out, you know, coming out of the EU. That's the way we're going. So standing there like that. Oh, hey, listen, listen, listen. Where, where am I going? Behave yourself, Joey. Tell you what's coming today, sure. First up is we've got a, a bit of main fiction, The Rings of Mars by William Ledbetter. Then we have Mr. J.J. Campanella with his science news. And actually, Jim is on holiday. He sent this, this over a couple of weeks ago there now because he, he knew he was away on holiday. So I hope you're having a fab time, Jim. Thank you so much. So we'll get into the, the main fiction, like I say. 
The Rings of Mars by William Ledbetter, which originally published in Writers of the Future, Volume 28. William is a writer with more than 40 speculative fiction stories and non-fiction articles, published in markets such as Fantasy and Science Fiction, Jim Bain's Universe, Writers of the Future, Escape Pod, Ad Astra, and Bain.com. He's been a space and technology geek since childhood, well done, sir, and spent most of his non-writing career in aerospace and the defence industry. He administers the Jim Bain Memorial Short Story Award Contest for Bain Books and the National Space Society. He is a member of the Science Fiction Writers of America, the National Space Society of North Texas, a Launchpad Astronomy Workshop graduate, is Science Track Coordinator for the FENCON Convention, and is a consulting editor at Heroic Fantasy Quarterly. Heroic Fantasy Quarterly! <laughs> he lives in Dallas with his family and too many animals. <laughs> <laughs> would you believe we're going to go and see a puppy today <gasps> that would be four bloody dogs man never mind never mind i'll tell you all about that later on we'll see what happens the story is narrated by the amazing j.s arquin j.s arquin is a writer an actor musician pessimist optimist <laughs> a pessimistic optimist i need i need a good dose of that now man he lives in portland oregon and spends a large portion of his time producing The Overcast, which is a, just a fantastic podcast. Please subscribe to that. A speculative fiction podcast featuring breathtaking stories from the Pacific Northwest and beyond. And there's a link on there. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present The Rings of Mars by William Ledbetter Read by J.S. Arquin You can't run away from me, Jack, I said into my helmet mic. I can radio base and get your suit coordinates. Screw you, Malcolm, he said, then refused to talk again. I followed his trail and tried not to think about why my oldest and closest friend in two worlds and his robotic digger Nelly had left me far behind. Instead, I concentrated on perfecting the loping stride Jack had taught me months before. It was an awkward, unnatural rhythm, but he assured me it was the most efficient method and of the humans on Mars, no one had covered more ground than Jack. Tiny dervishes lifted from the dust churned by Nellie's tracks, swirling on a delicate breeze, but my passage was enough to cause their collapse. Everything on Mars seemed ancient and tired, even the wind. Jack's boot prints, wide apart and shallow, were on a straight course and easy to follow, but Nellie's tracks peeled off in strange directions many times. She must have sniffed out oxide-rich gravel patches to melt in her electrolysis furnace. But no matter how far she went, the robot's path always returned to Jack's. I followed their trail and tried to rejoice in being one of the few humans to ever see Mars like this. But my regrets persisted. Against all reason and expectation, Jack thought himself more colonist than explorer and was willing to trample anyone in that pursuit. If devious resourcefulness was typical of Martians, then Jack was a good one. An alarm squawked in my ears, surprising me enough that I stumbled and skidded to a floundering stop. Radiation alert. ETA, 47 minutes. Seek immediate shelter. 47 minutes? My suit's magnetized outer skin was protection against the ambient radiation, but 
not huge solar flares. I fought growing panic as I turned in circles, looking for a cave, stone outcropping, or even a boulder, but saw only dust and scattered rocks. The nearest ridge line was blurry with distance. Anger also grew in the wake of my fear. Nellie provided our only radiation protection, and Jack had taken her. They were probably digging in already, and I had to find them if I wanted to survive. I started running. Malcolm? Jack? This is base, do you copy? I could hear the tension in the communication officer's voice. I read you, Courtney, I said, my voice jarred by running. Why so little warning? I thought we were supposed to get it days ahead of time. I don't know, but you and Jack had better get to shelter. There's no way we can get a truck or the dirigible to you fast enough. I'm trying, I said, and signed off. Then Jack's voice crackled into my helmet. Malcolm, we're coming back for you. Follow our trail to meet us and run. I ran faster. Their dust cloud was visible long before I could resolve shapes, but they kept coming, and soon Nellie's squat hexagonal form appeared at the head of her rooster-tail dust plume. I didn't see Jack. Five minutes later, I staggered and gasped to a stop next to the robot as Jack climbed down from her back. The bastard never mentioned we could ride her. She trundled back and forth over a large flat spot, then, finding a suitable location, jolted to a stop. Her treaded drive unit separated and rotated on their mountings, raising the shoulder-high robot into the air on its toes like a three-footed ballerina. Panels slid open between the tracks, revealing large, spinning cutters that folded out and locked into place. Nellie sank rapidly into the ground as sand jetted skyward from tubes on her back. The alarm sounded again, this time giving us less than twenty minutes. I glanced at Jack, but he stared at the robot's interface panel on his sleeve and said nothing. Nellie disappeared below the lip of the hole, and within a couple of minutes, the dirt stopped flying. Jack tapped out a few more commands and a cloud of dust poofed from the hole. He ran to look inside, then pulled an aluminum rod from his pack. With several twists and pulls, it became a telescoping ladder with rungs folding out from each side. He dropped it into the dark excavation and climbed down, motioning for me to follow. I peered over the edge just as Jack opened Nellie's top hatch and disappeared inside. I was confused because there wasn't room for us both, but followed him down and through. Once inside, I understood. Nellie had split in two, with her upper half forming the airlock and her lower part a larder and mini-lab. The pieces were connected by a telescoping post in the center, and mottled gray plastic surrounded us, sagging in pleats like a discarded skirt. Jack had designed her well. As I dogged the hatch behind me, Jack flipped a switch, and Nellie started inflating the plastic envelope with oxygen she had collected through her rock-melting electrolysis procedure. Air pushed the big plastic bag open until it tightened against the dirt and rock walls, creating a 15-foot diameter by 7-foot tall pressurized donut-shaped habitat. We'll leave our outer suits here, Jack said, indicating where we stood in the donut's hole. Use nose plugs until we're through the second seal. When the status light turned green, Jack released his helmet seal with an equalizing pop. 
I did the same and held my breath until my nose filters were in place, then started breathing in through my nose and out through my mouth, a routine everyone on Mars had mastered within the first few days. Can we get a comlink down here? I asked, while loosening the seals on my excursion suit. How will we know when the radiation storm is over? Jack ignored me as he removed his suit's radiation skin, leaving only the biomaintenance layer, or what he called million-dollar long johns. The nanoplied material absorbed moisture, adjusted body temperature, and used a powerful elastic netting to maintain the skin's surface tension at about a third of Earth normal. Only the helmet held pressurized air. They were extremely efficient, but they fit too snugly, and mine was already chafing in sensitive spots. We slipped through two overlapping seals to enter the main chamber, and I was surprised by the noise from Nellie's fans. She was pumping and filtering enough air to maintain half-Earth normal pressure. Coupled with the heat she was generating to warm the burrow, it must be a huge drain on her batteries. So how long will Nellie's batteries let us stay down here? Jack didn't answer, but opened a flap, pulled a long, clear tube from Nellie's guts, and looked at the water sloshing inside. Looks like she collected about half a liter, I said. Is that good or bad? He still didn't respond. We'll be stuck down here for hours, or maybe even days. How long are you going to keep up this childish silent treatment? He turned to glare at me. The dim light provided by Nellie's lamps gave him a menacing appearance. Shut the hell up, Malcolm. I wasn't going to leave it alone. This trip would be my last opportunity to see him face to face for years. Or, if his present state was any indicator, the rest of my life. You did this to yourself. Why are you blaming me? I yelled over the fan noise. We'd been best friends since our sophomore year at Purdue and he'd never in 15 years been so angry at me. I hadn't caused the board to order him home, but I had supported their decision. To Jack, it was the same thing. He glared at me for a second, and then moved around the donut where I couldn't see him. I followed. When he lowered himself to the floor against the outer wall, I sat down facing him, making sure he knew I wasn't giving up. I warned you this would happen, I said. I tried to help you. Did you ever consider, for even a second, that I knew what I was doing? Well, yes, but... And I wanted to take this last walk alone, he said, barely audible above the fan noise. I invited you to come on every walking trip I took, and you always turned me down. Why now? Because you didn't invite me this trip, I thought but didn't say aloud. Jack could disable the locator on his excursion suit and, with Nellie's help, easily hide until the Earth-Mars cycler window passed. That would give him an extra six months. Because this will be our last chance to do this together, I said. You've been telling me for a year that I hadn't seen the real Mars. Now's your chance to show me. He scrambled toward me on all fours, stopping inches from my face close enough for me to smell his stale sweat. Together, go to hell, Malcolm. I wanted you to see what I'd found, because you were my friend. 
but your job and that stinking corporation are more important to you than anything else. I shoved him out of my face. Bull, I busted my tail to get you up here. I pulled strings and called in favors because you are my friend and I knew you would love it here. But you screwed it up. That stinking corporation flew you to Mars and is paying you a salary to find mineral deposits big enough to justify building a permanent colony. You need satellites and robot flyers for that. Not even a hot jock geologist like you can do it wandering aimlessly around the surface. He shook his head. You're a planetologist, for God's sake. One of the first in history to actually walk on another world. And yet, you've never even seen it. I spend every day studying this planet. I go out in the field. Don't give me that crap, he said. You fly to a spot, get out, and walk around for a few hours, then come back to a nice, cozy little office. You don't know this planet. Well, here I am. Show me. He shook his head and again moved around to the opposite side. I gave up and leaned back against the curved wall. My muscles ached from the unaccustomed workout, but the cool Martian soil behind the plastic felt good against my throbbing head. I didn't remember falling asleep, but I woke stiff and cold to the sounds of Jack rummaging through supplies in Nellie's larder. I sat up with a groan. He tossed me a nutrition bar and a water bag. It's morning. The radiation warning's over. We're leaving. We emerged under a sky thick with brilliant stars. I almost made a nasty comment about it not being morning, but was stunned into silence. One couldn't see anything like this through Earth's atmosphere, not even in the mountains or at the base. Work and safety lights diminished the brilliance. Man always had to leave the cities to see the stars. That hadn't changed. Jack ignored me and watched Nellie struggle from her hole like some cybernetic land crab. My helmet prevented me from looking up for very long. I wished I could remove it and see that sky without the reflections and scratches of my faceplate to feel the soft breezes and smell the air. But we never could. Someday, humans might feel the Martian wind on their faces. But it wouldn't be me or Jack, and it wouldn't be the same Mars. Dawn came quickly in the thin atmosphere, and while I watched, the stars faded and the black and gray landscape bloomed purple and orange. I'd seen two Martian sunrises outside the base, and both had been in passing while loading trucks for field excursions. Never had I taken the time to actually experience dawn on our new world. Not like this. Thanks, Jack, I said. If you show me nothing else, that sunrise was worth the trip. It's always been here. Once the anemic white sun peeked over the hills, we started east this time slowly enough for me to keep up. A few hours later, after Nellie had once again topped off her oxygen tanks, we descended a long grade into a deep, narrow canyon. The wind picked up, showering us with blowing sand and the occasional dust devil. 
I marveled at the simple beauty of the untouched stones surrounding us. The canyon walls were painted by purple shadows, but where the sun struck the sides, bright, bloody reds and sandy whites sprang into stark and sudden brilliance. We rounded some rocks and Jack stopped. I stopped too. Ten or twelve black, twisted shapes stood alone in the middle of the broad canyon floor. The largest stood over ten feet tall, with arms stretching toward us and others reaching to the sky. My pulse raced, and I made myself move forward. They were black stone. Some were pitted, porous, and a few polished to an almost mirror finish. I could see that some of their lengths had been recently uncovered, evidence of Jack's previous visits. Basalt, with the surrounding soft stone eroded away? Maybe they're Martians, Jack said. They do look like tormented souls frozen in their misery. The lava must have squeezed through some tight spaces, fast and under extreme pressure to form that way. Odd, isn't it, he said. His tone made me turn to look. He was staring down into a shallow depression between the figures, then turned toward me. His haunted expression made a chill crawl up my back. For the first time in my life, Jack frightened me. I found something, Malcolm. Something important. I stared at him, surprised and waiting, but he didn't elaborate. Well, what did you find? I'm trying to decide if I want to show you or not, he said. That stunned me. Did Jack's distrust cut that deep? But even if it did, how could anyone find something important on Mars and not share it with the rest of humanity? What the hell does that mean? I said. Right now, I'm in control. When you realize what I've found, you'll try to take over. I don't want that. I want you to remember that you're my friend. The implication frightened me. Could his find be so important that it would cause a schism between us, larger than my agreeing to send him home? I said the only thing I could say. Of course I'm your friend. I can't forget that. I'm not so sure. When he started walking, Nellie and I followed, but I was frustrated and worried. Our Mars base had been continuously occupied for nearly three years, but we'd found nothing surprising. At least, nothing eye-popping enough to goad Mars Corp into building a permanent colony. We'd proved we could live here, but it was expensive, and the coolness aspect was wearing off back home. We needed a holy crap factor. If Jack had found that and was keeping it to himself... I'd beat him to a pulp. He wouldn't hesitate to tell me if he'd found a huge underground aquifer or a large platinum deposit. So, he'd found something momentous. Was it some kind of moss or lichen living under the sand? Or a fossil of some long-dead plant or animal? I itched to question him, to threaten or coerce him into telling me but knew that wouldn't work with Jack. He'd tell me or he wouldn't. 
and nothing I said or did at this point would change that. By mid-afternoon, we came to a low ridge. We were almost on top of it before I realized it was the ejecta blanket from an ancient crater. I followed him up the gentle slope and looked down on a chaotic scene. The crater floor was covered with boot prints, Nellie's tracks, and piles of stone that formed a ring easily a hundred yards across. I had a sinking feeling. Jack had obviously arranged the stones. Wow. Martian crop circles? He ignored me and followed the rim until he and Nellie turned into a narrow opening where the crater wall had collapsed. Their past traffic had packed the fall into a hard ramp that led down to the floor. As we descended, I saw a hole surrounded by darker, finely spread sand. I recognized the robot's handiwork. Jack had slept there at some point. He went directly to the hole, mounted a collapsible ladder already inside, and disappeared into the dark interior. My excitement grew as I followed nearly falling off the ladder twice in my haste to get to the bottom. About halfway down, the hole opened into the upside-down mushroom shape where Nellie's inflatable shelter had once expanded. Careful, Jack said. There's a big hole in the floor. I stepped off the ladder and in the dim light could see the bottom littered with gravel and several large discarded bags made from rope and cut-up plastic tarp. I turned on my helmet lamp and saw a large hole in the floor, nearly two yards in diameter, just a few feet from the ladder. Wispy steam floated from inside. I looked up to ask Jack why, but he was gone. I spun around and saw a large opening in one wall. Light flickered inside. Jack? In the tunnel. This will be easier to explain if you see it. The tunnel was narrow and just tall enough to clear my helmet, but ran about ten feet, then teed left and right. I stopped. The wall before me curved and twinkled in my headlamp. When I moved the light, I saw parts of the surface were translucent. Blues, grays, and whites flowed together, making odd shadows. I moved slowly along the tunnel, one side of which was the strange material until it opened into a small chamber. Only then did I realize I was looking at a large cylinder that disappeared into the ceiling and floor. Jack waited on the far side. Jack, please tell me you didn't make this. Nope. What's it made of? Have you analyzed it yet? Water ice, he said. My hammering heart slowed, and I relaxed a little. Of course, it would be something natural. For a moment, I'd envisioned beautiful stone pillars holding up the roof of an ancient Martian temple. But then I realized, even if it didn't match my wild imagination, he'd still made an amazing find. I touched it again. There's so much. How deep do you think it goes? Nellie estimates another... Forty feet or so beyond this. Holy crap! They're all that deep. All thirty-six of them. I don't... Thirty-six what? Jack dragged his hand along the ice and moved to face me. Thirty-six ice pillars. I've only uncovered five, but those stones up top show the pattern Nelly found. 
These five are all perfectly smooth and exactly the same diameter. And I'd bet they're all the same depth, too. I stared at him. A lump formed in my throat, and I felt a weight on my chest. I was a scientist. I couldn't let myself believe the conclusions my mind formed. I wanted something like this too bad. It had to be studied. It has to be some natural formation, I said with an overly dry mouth. Nature does strange things. Like those creepy basalt shapes. He shrugged. I'm not saying otherwise. But these things are also equally spaced. Thirty-five forming a ring, with another one in the center. I turned and rushed back out to the hole in the floor. Is this one of them too? I asked, dreading his response. Yeah, Jack said and came up behind me. Nelly sensed the water ice and stopped here to dig. I wouldn't have thought to even look back in the hole after we were done, except she'd filled her nearly empty water tanks with this single dig and threw extra ice out onto the surface to evaporate. That never happened before. And the hole is... Because it's sublimating. The light hits it during the day. I tried covering it up, but that created a heated pocket and made it worse. My hand shook. If his claim was true, Jack had stumbled across what might be the largest single find in human history, and he was letting it vaporize. You're digging the others out? I'm not exposing them to the light. They haven't lost anything from their diameters. My respiration peaked so rapidly an alarm sounded in my helmet as the suit adjusted my gas levels. Jack, we... we have no idea how old these things are or what the open air will do to them. We have no right. We're not qualified to make this kind of decision for the entire human race. Why not? Jack said. No one on Earth has ever encountered alien artifacts, so we're the new experts. I had a panicky feeling about losing more of this material. I had to stop him. But I took a deep breath and tried to focus. Jack wasn't an idiot, so I needed to listen to what he was saying. I entered the tunnel and checked the ambient temperature inside. Minus 63 Celsius, which might be fine since it wasn't in direct sunlight. We don't know what's in that ice, I said. Maybe there were sculptures or carved instructions or some kind of microorganisms. Maybe even cold suspended Martian DNA. We could be losing hundreds of painfully preserved Martian species. This one was an accident, and it's too late to save it. Maybe not. We could fill it back up with dirt, then call it in and get all of mankind's resources behind us. And lose them forever to Mars Corp? I paused, not sure what he meant. No one will take this away from you, Jack. You'll still get all the credit. He slapped a dusty glove against my helmet, making my ears ring. Credit? You just don't get it, do you? I don't care about getting credit. This is a message. It's a puzzle, and I want to figure it out. I feel like I'm so close. The swat on my helmet made me furious, but I held back. 
I still wanted to convince him it was right before I reported this to the base. You'll still be able... No, he said, and bumped his visor against mine, putting his face as close to me as possible. If we report this, Mars Corp will turn it into a Martian Disneyland. Most of those idiots on Earth care about nothing but making money, so this will become a cash cow vacation spot. Oh, come on. You don't think... There's dignity in this place, Malcolm. It's a serious message aimed directly at humanity, not some damned tourist attraction. A message? You don't know that. If these were put here by some other intelligence, it could have just been a water cache. It's a message designed for us. What better way to signal Earthlings coming to Mars? We'd be looking for water. Even if this is several million years old and they didn't know what we would be like, they would still know any species coming from Earth would need water. I swallowed and tried to control my building frustration. You may be right, but we have tools at the base to protect these artifacts while we study them. If there's a message, we'll find it. I'm going to call it in. He stared at me, but there was no anger in his eyes, only cold determination. I have to, Jack. He nodded inside his helmet and then grabbed both of my arms in an iron grip. I knew I couldn't trust you with this, so I guess we'll do it the hard way, he said. Into the hole. What? I was confused. He started pushing me backward toward the opening in the floor. I don't want to damage your suit, but if you don't jump down into that hole, I'll throw you in. Oh, come on. You can't. Now, Malcolm. I turned my torso enough so I could look down into the hole. The ice floor was easily 20 feet down, much too deep to jump out, even with Martian gravity. Jack, don't be. He gave me a little shove and I staggered back toward the hole. I had no choice but to jump or would have fallen in but first. I landed on the slick surface with a bone-jarring thump, but kept my feet. He stared down at me, still wearing that cold, blank expression. I considered the possibility that my best friend was about to kill me. It would be easy enough and hard to prove. Jack, what? I doubt that you can contact base from down there. I'll call in your location. Your Mars Corp lackeys will be here to rescue you in a couple of hours. And boy, will they be surprised at your spectacular find. Before I could answer, he disappeared from view. He was wrong. Reception was bad down in the hole, but I did make contact with the base. My call generated equal amounts of excitement and incredulity. I wished I'd thought to record video, but hadn't planned on reporting from a hole within a hole. I could tell by their carefully phrased responses that they only half believed me, but would hold their skepticism in check until they could see it themselves. They also gave me bad news. A large dust storm was rolling in and would prevent launching a dirigible. Courtney said they were sending the ground trucks immediately, but it would be four hours minimum depending on the storm's severity. The link faded into static. I looked up and could only see pale powder spiraling into the hole.
Sandstorms on Mars carried millions of tons of the talc-fine dust that could easily bury me. I pulled the climbing axe from my belt and tried to hack hand and footholds into the hard-packed wall. Ten minutes and three handholds later, I paused to check my oxygen usage. Five hours and twenty minutes at my current rate. I had to slow my breathing. I looked up and saw only dust swirling in my helmet lamp, then caught a metallic glint. Jack had not taken the ladder. I fumbled the line from my utility pouch and tied on two chisels about ten inches apart. On my fifth try, the makeshift bolo did not come back. I pulled and tugged. The ladder jerked suddenly and sailed into the hole, hitting my shoulder on the way down. I cursed, then held my breath, waiting for my suit alarms to tell me I had a tear, but I'd been lucky. Once on the surface, with wind-driven sand pelting my suit, I had a decision to make. I could wait down in the hole, safe from the ravaging storm, and probably die as my air ran out. Or I could go find Jack. The wind was steady and mild at the moment, but even tired old Mars could drive abrasive grit at 200 miles per hour on the open plains. My suit's tough outer skin was all one piece and could stand that abuse for a long time, but my helmet seal was at risk. I pulled the aluminum ladder from the hole and attached an antenna wire. Much to my surprise, I established an immediate satellite link through the static charge dust. I called Jack and got no response. I tried to get his suit's transponder location and failed. So I called base. The trucks had to stop and wait for better visibility, Courtney said through static. You need to hunker down and conserve your air until they arrive. My tank level read less than five hours remaining. If the trucks started moving now and had no more delays, they might make it to me in time. My decision was now easy. I had to find Nellie. Can you contact Jack for me? He called in to give us your location about ten minutes after your first call. He wanted to make sure we could find you, but we haven't been able to contact him since, and his transponder stopped transmitting right after that. The bastard dumped me in a hole so he could run off and hide? It made no sense. Even if I died, my suit transponder would eventually lead rescuers to me in the pillars. His secret was out. Why let me die? Can you give me a line between my position and his last call so I'll have a direction? Sure, she said. The static was worsening. If Jack didn't want to be found, he would have changed course immediately after his call, but it was a starting place. If I could get close enough... Maybe he would hear my call. Staying here and waiting wasn't a real option. I just sent the coordinates from Jack's last call and his last five transponder pings. I had no idea he'd covered so much ground on his walkabouts. How do you know that? I asked. I'm looking at a map of his ping locations for all of his excursions. I have one for everyone who... Can you send me that map? If I could see where Jack had been, I might get an idea where he could hide. Courtney paused. Sure. It might take several tries with this bad connection, but it's on the way. Thanks, I said, and started to sign off. Malcolm, why did Jack leave you there? I pissed him off. He's lost it, she said with obvious anger in her voice. Well, 
If he wasn't already going home, he would be now. Stay put. The ground trucks are moving again, but slowly. We're also rigging a flyer to bring you some O2 canisters. The robotic flyers were more like powered gliders with long, fragile wings. They wouldn't get one even close to me in this wind. Don't waste the flyer, Courtney. I'm going to try and find Jack. Malcolm out. I broke the connection and pulled up the ping map on my helmet's HUD screen. Thousands of random dots covered a topographical map with location numbers on a grid. The widely scattered dots made my eyes hurt, but I could see some patterns. Many dots were arranged in snaky lines, obviously sent while he was on the move, but there were also heavy clumps representing locations where he'd spent time. I zoomed the view out, and as the dots converged, I saw it. Most were in clumps that formed a pattern. I added in a red dot for my location, and it appeared atop one of the heavy traffic clusters. The wind buffeted me, some gusts threatening to knock me down, and dust had drifted around my feet, but I ignored it as my pulse raced and my heart thudded. I instructed my suit's computer to ignore the noise data and only chart those points where 20 or more appeared in close proximity. 17 clumps appeared, evenly dispersed along a broad arc. I told the computer to consider each cluster a single point and extrapolate the pattern based on the existing group. The new pattern formed a ring nearly 40 miles across and contained 35 points. The ring of pillars Jack had marked in the crater contained 35 with one in the middle. The center of the large ring fell in the canyon where we'd seen the basalt formations earlier that morning. Even though his actions might kill me, I had to appreciate Jack's devious mind this time. He'd shown me these ice pillars as bait to get me excited and keep me and the base off his back while he explored the real find. And this was his last trip before being sent home, so it had to be now. I fixed the canyon location on my map, pulled the patching tape from my repair kit, and wrapped my helmet seal for extra protection, then started walking. I carried the ladder with me, using it both as antenna and a pole to feel out terrain made invisible by the thick, whirling dust. I also kept broadcasting directly to Jack. I know you're in the center with your Martian friends, and I'm on my way to meet you. I need oxygen. As an added incentive, I also said, This is encrypted, but my transponder is still broadcasting. An hour into my trek, Courtney called to tell me their specially rigged flyer had crashed. With a voice strained by grief, she rattled off the standard oxygen conservation litany and again begged me to stay put. I told her I could find Jack, then signed off and kept walking. When the one-hour oxygen warning dinged, I checked my position and realized I couldn't make it to the basalt formations, even if I'd guessed Jack's location correctly. The wide plain between canyon and crater would have been safe enough to allow running, with only a slight chance of falling, but my slow, cautious advance through the storm had killed me. I tossed the ladder aside and started running. Less than a minute later, my radio crackled to life with Jack's voice. Turn on your emergency strobe and stop moving, Malcolm. According to your transponder blip on my map, I should be right on you. I stopped and fumbled for the strobe switch on my helmet, but before I could flip it, Nellie materialized out of the dust and nearly ran over me as she shot past. 
I turned as she skidded to a halt amid scattered sand and gravel. Tears formed, blurring my vision, and warm relief flowed through me like very old scotch. Jack jumped down from Nellie's back and started detaching oxygen canisters from her side. This whole Jack arriving like the cavalry to save Malcolm thing is getting kind of old, he said as he turned me around, opened my pack and switched out my tanks. I swallowed, trying to clear the lump in my throat. Thanks, I said. Did you hear my calls to you? Yeah, but I started back as soon as I realized your Mars Corp friends were going to let you die. So I was right? The basalt formations are at the center of a larger pattern? Yeah, he said with a grim expression. How do you know? After I explained, he shook his head and sighed. I knew I should have disconnected that damn transponder a long time ago. Not that it matters now. I had my chance, and I blew it. Jack had come back for me, risking his opportunity to be the first person to see the big find. He wanted a chance to solve the puzzle to discern the message he perceived in those formations. Helping him still do that was the least I could do in thanks. What's down there, I said, in the canyon? I don't know yet, but Nellie says it's nearly thirty feet square, and the part I've uncovered so far is flat, smooth basalt. Those weird shapes you saw are attached to it like sprues to an injection-molded part. Like it was molded or formed in place? He nodded. Huge and square, I thought, and tried to dampen my new excitement. Amazing! So you haven't exposed anything that will melt? He laughed for the first time since learning he was going home. No. Basalt doesn't melt easily. But there's something else. I waited and can see him smiling through the visor. Well? There's a pattern in the face I uncovered. Thirty-five cylindrical pockets arranged in a ring, with one in the center. According to Nellie's analysis, the translucent material at the bottom of each hole is diamond. What could that mean? I have no idea. I had to stop and come rescue you. It was my turn to smile. I held up a finger and called base. Sorry for the scare, Courtney, I said. But I found Jack. Nellie's working fine, so we have plenty of air and are not in any danger now. Thank God, Malcolm. Meteorology says this storm could last another two or three days. Are you sure you have enough supplies for that long? Jack cut in on the conversation, reassuring her we were going to be fine. You're in a heap of trouble, Jack, and I still don't have a transponder signal for you. He opened his mouth, but I cut him off. Actually, Courtney, I may be losing my transponder signal, too. We're about to go into an area that seems to play hell with most of our communications gear, so don't worry if you don't hear from us for a few days. I don't think we'll meet up with the investigation team at the dig site in two or three days, or whenever the storm lets up. But Malcolm and Jack signing off, I said, and killed the connection. Jack looked at me and raised an eyebrow. If you could find that pattern, they can too. Besides, they have enough information to know what direction you were going. Yeah, but we could head north for a few hours and cut off my transponder, then enter the canyon from the north end. That should mess them up for a while. It may only give us a few days, probably only until the storm ends. Will that be enough time? He shrugged, always a strange gesture in an excursion suit. Maybe.
But if you do this, there's a good chance you'll be sent home too. I wouldn't miss this for anything, I said, and started running. We dug in for the night near the canyon's north end and awoke to a sickly yellowish-pink dawn. The weak sun struggled to break through the haze, but the storm had abated and the winds died, so the timer was running. If our luck ran out, our fellow explorers could find us within a matter of hours. Ninety minutes after breaking camp, we stood atop the basalt block. Using Nellie's vacuum system, we removed the dust accumulated from the storm, revealing a smooth, polished surface, with the now familiar pattern of holes in the center of the top surface. How odd that they'd make this finely polished cube, yet have these weird, gnarly sprues marring its perfection, I said. It does look to be part of the formation process, Jack said. Maybe they just didn't care about the sprues. Yeah, but why these holes? Why their fascination with this particular pattern? He knelt down and aimed his helmet light into the holes. They were the diameter of a golf ball and about a foot deep. And as he'd earlier reported, their bottoms were glassy and clear. I don't know, but I'd sure as hell like to find out. Looks like we need some kind of key, I said. And if we had a key, I wonder what it would do. Jack stared at the holes, occasionally poking his gloved finger in one. Maybe we could make a key. You know, I said, pausing, not sure if I should voice my latest thought. The other holes are filled with water ice. Maybe? Jack almost leapt to his feet. It couldn't hurt to try. Of course, that comment left me feeling more than a little uneasy, but there was no stopping him once he got started. Forty minutes later, I dubiously examined Jack's kludge work. He'd originally wanted to build a manifold of tubes to feed water into each hole evenly, but I had stopped him when I realized he'd have to cannibalize most of Nellie's internal plumbing to realize the contraption. We instead covered the pattern with a shallow tent made from extra sheet plastic, precariously sealed to the surrounding surface with our entire stock of suit repair putty. A hole in the center was cinched up tight around a tube attached to Nellie's tanks. Jack assured me that if we pumped water in fast enough, it would fill the holes and freeze before evaporating. I wasn't convinced, but we had nothing to lose, except, of course, some of our water. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. What if we do open the lock or activate something? What if we break it? Jack looked up at me his exasperation obvious even through the dusty visor. Make up your mind, Malcolm. We're never going to get another shot at this. It's us, right now, or we forget about it. They're going to be pissed enough to ship us back home, and instead of us figuring this out, some Martian Mickey Mouse will build an enchanted castle around it. He was right. I had made my decision and sealed my allegiance. Let's try it. We stood on a pile of excavated dirt at the cube's edge and pumped the water in under pressure. Wispy vapor curls immediately revealed the gaps in our crude seal. The tent filled and tightened rapidly, to the point we feared it would burst the seal. Stop! I yelled. Jack killed the flow and the plastic almost immediately started to deflate. Crap, he said. We'd better look quick. Before we could pull the cover off and check our handiwork, a series of reports, loud enough in the weak Martian air to hear through our helmets, made us both step backward. Fissures appeared in the basalt, radiating outward from under the plastic cover in an oddly uniform pattern. You were right, Jack muttered. We broke it. Maybe not. The lines are all straight and equally spaced like pie wedges. They don't look like natural fissures. Before I could say another word, he jumped down onto the surface, tested it with a couple of bounces, then dropped to his knees, shining his helmet light into the cracks. He motioned for me to come down. The basalt's only about a foot thick, he said, and it looks like more diamond under it. Holy crap! Do you think this stuff just covers a big block of diamond? Well, it would sure be durable, I said and joined him. I removed the cover to look at the pattern. It had nearly disappeared, but I could tell by the fragment arrangement that the cracks had each started at a hole, then run across the top and disappear down the sides into the dirt. Looks like our ice expanded and started the breaks, I said. No way. One or two cracks, maybe, to relieve pressure, but not. He paused and ran a hand along the edge of several sections, then started pulling on them. Unless, of course, he grunted, it was designed to break this way. The wedge moved nearly an inch. He stood up and looked at me. I bet if the whole block had been uncovered, this shell would have fallen away. I think it was meant to fall away. We used Nellie to dig all morning, but by mid-afternoon had to send her out in search of ice to replenish our air and water supply. So we dug by hand, using our climbing axes. Once we'd totally cleared the second side, Jack slipped his axe blade behind one of the loose basalt sections and started gently rocking it. With an audible pop, the strip collapsed into large chunks that tumbled down on him like stacked blocks pushed over by a petulant child. I heard him grunt and curse over the comlink as he disappeared in a pile of stone and dust. Jack! I ran to him and started moving yard-wide pieces of stone I wouldn't have been able to lift on earth. Crap, he muttered as I pulled the last piece off. Are you leaking? 
Are you hurt? No leaks, he said, but I could hear pain in his voice. And I'm fine. Just help me get up. I moved one more slab and couldn't miss its obvious uniformity. Jack had been right again. The basalt covering had been designed to come apart easily. The shell's inside face had been serrated in a grid pattern, the squares held together by a thin strip of surface stone that was easily broken once the interconnecting tensions and supporting soil had been removed. I turned my attention to what lay beneath the shell. It appeared to be a solid block of diamond. I switched on my helmet light and looked inside. Prickles and chills crawled up my back as I unwittingly uttered the phrase from the old science fiction classic. My God, it's full of stars. Jack grunted as he brushed off dust and checked his suit and harness equipment for damage. Stop screwing around. What do you see? I opened my mouth, but words wouldn't come. The interior of the block was filled with what looked like constellations of sparkling stars. It was as if someone had cut a block of the stunning Martian midnight and buried it for us to find. Malcolm? Jack moved up next to me, leaning in to see. The star-like points in the block only glowed when my light touched them. My scientific mind argued that they could be impurities or microfractures in the diamond block, but part of me knew I was looking at a three-dimensional celestial map. A map, Jack whispered. My comlink hissed and popped. Then Courtney's voice intruded on our discovery. Come in, Malcolm. This is Mars Base One. I almost succumbed to training and long ingrained habit to answer her, but remained silent. I glanced at Jack, but he was totally focused on the block's interior. Come in, Malcolm. We've had flyers all over the area since the storm ended. There are no communication anomalies. We don't know what you two are doing out there, but the commander is pissed. She paused for a second, then resumed. He says Jack is going home no matter what, but considering the amazing find you reported, he might consider letting you stay. If you call in now. The urge to respond with a long string of obscenity was nearly overwhelming. They were prepared to let me die in the storm, yet were now threatening to punish me? I bit my lip, made sure my frequency setting was set for local and Jack's channel, and told him. We better hurry. Base just called. I don't think they know where we are yet, but they are sure looking. We started digging faster. When Nellie returned, I focused my efforts on getting video of the map from every exposed angle. By sundown, the three of us had cleared two more sides, leaving only the bottom and one side still covered, but the light failed quickly in the canyon. Base had tried to call me and Jack several more times during the day, and at one point we saw a flyer high in the east, over the area we'd been heading before killing my transponder. We better dig in for the night, Jack said. If we're going to uncover this, we'd better work through the night, I said. Now that the wind has died, they'll eventually see Nellie's fresh tracks and follow them back here. Yeah, but if we're lucky, they won't find the tracks until tomorrow. Then it will take hours for them to get here by truck or blimp but if they keep those flyers looking all night, they would see our work lights or even our IR signatures and be here before morning. I think we should get underground. I hated to leave the find for that long, but reluctantly agreed. 
Once out of our suits and settled in our burrow for the night, I linked my suit's computer to Nellie so that we could both see the video on her fold-out display screen. I instructed the computer to build a 3D map based on the footage and overlay the actual video with graphics. We both immediately noticed that among the thousands of points, some were three to four times larger than the rest, looking more like embedded pearls than distant stars. Those pearl points were located in pairs, some almost touching and others separated by up to an inch. Each pearl was also connected to another, more distant pearl by a hair-thin line. Weird, Jack said in an almost whisper. Those bolos or barbells or some kind of pattern, but... Computer, overlay any existing star charts in the database with those patterns. I have only rudimentary navigational aid star charts in my local database, the computer said in its charming southern bell voice, causing Jack to look at me with a smile and raised eyebrows. Do you want me to search the base archives or send a download request to Earth? Does Nellie have star charts? I asked the still-grinning Jack. Malcolm, you must really just answer the question. He shook his head. No real need. Go ahead and tap base camp. It's only a matter of hours until they find us anyway. Check the base first, then send to Earth if they don't have an all-inclusive chart. I'm loading the 3D star chart from base camp data stores, the computer said. Please provide a relative scale for the newly constructed pattern. Jack and I looked at the slowly rotating pattern on the screen, then back at each other with shrugs. We have no scale. You'll have to look for relational patterns, then adjust scales accordingly. Understood, the computer said. Inform us if you have any pattern match greater than 70%. Understood. Radio calls from base camp increased after the computer's download connection, but we ignored them. Jack started fixing a simple dinner, but I couldn't stop looking at the pattern. I could see two exceptions to the pearls appearing in pairs. A single pearl resided in one corner of the block, but was connected to the nearest pair by a line nearly two feet long. The second exception was a line that ran to a large cluster in the diagonally opposite corner. But due to my shaky camera work, the computer just showed them as a slightly disc-shaped clump. We took turns counting while we ate and agreed upon 17 pearls excluding the clump. The display changed abruptly, showing the original pattern in blue, overlaid with a new blinking red pattern. The legend at the bottom of the screen identified the red as Known stars. A little over half the points overlaid perfectly, but a few were shifted, all in the same direction, but by different amounts. About 20% of the stars in the blue pattern had no red counterpart, and none of the red points aligned with the pearls. Well, crap, muttered Jack. That wasn't much help. Computer, if you take known movement into account and project backwards, Would some of those stars from our database have matched the new pattern at some time in the past? At first, the computer didn't understand the request, but after I explained it in simpler terms, a counter appeared at the bottom of the screen, and the red stars started creeping toward the blue points. When they stopped moving, the number on the counter read 4372 BCE. 
Aside from six that blinked a label of track unknown, all of the shifted red stars now matched. There were still no points at the pearl locations. Damn, over 6,000 years ago, I said. They're still not as old as I expected, Jack said. Computer, have you displayed all the stellar information you have? Please show quasars, pulsars, brown dwarfs, comets, asteroids, and galaxies. Any objects that would show up within this pattern. And black holes, Jack concluded. The red star pattern density nearly doubled. Now, six dots matched locations with the pearls. Computer, show black holes or singularities as green. Dozens of points flashed green, including all six that were coincident with the pearls. So, Jack said, and sat back with a wide grin. They travel using black holes. Or maybe just use them to communicate or power some kind of gate? Computer, label the Sol system if it is on this map. Sol appeared next to the star nearest the Lone Corner Pearl. Oh, wow, Jack said and crawled up next to the screen. He pointed at the pearl nearest Earth. We enter a black hole here. He moved his finger along the line to the next pearl and exit here. Then move in normal space to this black hole. These are too conveniently placed, I said. I bet they're artificially constructed wormholes. He nodded and continued tracing the path, big jumps between black holes with the lines, and small trips to the next black hole, then another jump. The path led all the way to the big clump at the opposite corner. Grand Central Station, he said, tapping the clump. Well, there isn't anything really new about that idea, I said. Except this time it's real. Once again, my scientific mind refused to see the obvious as a real possibility, but I shoved those thoughts aside and laughed. Yeah, there is that. Maybe. We stared at the display for a few minutes, neither of us talking. Then I tapped the cluster on the screen, stood up, and started donning my suit. I need to see this clump again. Dawn is still five hours away, Jack said. Does it matter? We have to assume they know where we are now. Twenty minutes later, we stood atop the diamond cube and beneath a brilliant Martian light. Somewhere out in that thick star mass lived other sentient beings. It was now fact, not speculation. We looked down, switched on our helmet lights, and dropped to hands and knees. The pearl clump was near a top corner, and when our lights revealed it, we both gasped, then laughed. When viewed from the correct angle, the thirty-five pearls formed a ring around a central point or star. The last line in the path connected to a pearl in that ring. Daylight still hadn't penetrated the canyon when we took one last look at the cube. Jack fidgeted, looking from me to his wrist computer, then back at me. This still makes me nervous, Malcolm. What if there's another storm or radiation alert? It's a risk, but I can override communication security with voice recognition, and you can't. And if we all go, they will find us for sure. 
Nellie's tracks are just too easy to see from the air. He still looked uneasy. In order to ensure that Mars Corp didn't hide the find for years while they tried to think up a way to exploit it, we'd decided to break the news to Earth ourselves. Jack would go east, then call base telling them he was looking for me. That would hopefully make them focus their search east of the canyon, while I went west to the uplink antenna on the crater wall a mile from the base camp. You're just pissed that you have to provide the diversion this time. He didn't laugh or even smile. If you run most of the day, you should be back at the base camp just after sunset. You have the extra tank and water? Yes, Mom. He gripped my arms and squeezed. Call if you get in trouble, and I'll come and rescue your sorry tail again. Get moving, I said. He started south to exit the canyon from that end, and his graceful, gazelle-like stride took him out of sight in seconds. My gait was awkward as I started for the canyon's north end, but it soon smoothed out. Jack was still definitely the best Martian, but I was getting better. There you go, don't forget, copyright is Williams. William, what can I say? Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. And J.S. Arkwin, what a voice, what a voice, thank you. Again, pop over to the Overcast, subscribe to that now. Get your phone out now, get your phone out now and subscribe to it. Thank you. So, next up, Mr. J.J. Campanella with his end of the month science news. Jim, sir. Greetings and retrophytic junipations, my vituperously psychophilic listeners, and welcome to this June 2016 Science News Update. I'm your host for this unremarkably mandaritic science podcast segment, Jim Campanella. Tonight, part two of Adventures in Sleep Apnea, Revenge of the CPAP Machine. So... After being officially diagnosed with sleep apnea, I was told that insurance would pay for the use of a CPAP machine. Well, mostly pay. But the deal seemed okay to me. So what is a CPAP machine? Well, not only did my pulmonary specialist call it the gold standard in all of sleep apnea treatment, it is also the most ingenious and subtle torture device ever advised. And I do use the word subtle in a seriously ironic tone, as you shall see. A CPAP machine, by official definition, which I did not appreciate at all until putting it over my face, is a continuous positive airway pressure device. The machine pushes air into your airways continuously to ensure that they do not collapse when you are sleeping. The newest machine can actually change its air pressure and make it greater or lesser throughout the night to correspond to your breathing, or lack thereof. So pressure reduces as your breathing is more normal, and increases when it's less normal or stops. Sounds simple, huh? When I spoke to the nurse on the way out to make an appointment for the technician to drop this wondrous machine off at my home and explain its care and use, I had another amazing conversation, which went a bit like this. By the way... If you have read the book Wayward Pines or seen the TV show, you will immediately be reminded of the sadistic nurse Pam. Mr. Campanella, you'd better use this machine. Excuse me, ma'am? Better use it? 
Yes, or you'll lose it. I don't understand. How will anybody even know if I'm using it or not? Two ways, she says, and then stops. I have to encourage her to get more. Um, yeah, could you explain? The CPAP machine has Wi-Fi. What? Why would a breathing machine have Wi-Fi? And what is it transmitting? It's transmitting to the medical supply company, who then send the information to your insurance carrier. It's telling them whether you're using the machine for at least six hours a night, and everything about your sleep patterns. Six hours a night? Um, what if the Wi-Fi signal were blocked for some reason? I'm already thinking of putting the bloody CPAP into a Faraday cage to block off its signals. Oh, that doesn't matter. There's a memory card in the machine that records its every use, and how much you sleep, and how well it's working, and if it needs adjustments, oh, and lots more information besides. And you have to send the memory card into the company after three months. Isn't all this an invasion of my privacy? I get a shrug and answer. You want the CPAP machine? That's the price of it. Okay, so what happens if I don't use it? Simple. They'll take it away and you'll never get another one. Okay, thanks for the info, Nurse Ratchet. So, several days later, the sleep technician showed up at my house in the middle of dinner. Well, they did say he'd be there between four and seven, the perfect time for less than social interactions after a hard day of work. I asked if he could just give us a few minutes to finish up and clean up from dinner, but he made it clear. An appointment was an appointment, and anyway, he wanted to get home to dinner, and I was his last appointment of the day. So he pulls out this compact but complex pump device and plops it down on our counter, attaches a hose to it, and starts to explain its use in cleaning to me. Finally, he asks what kind of mask I want. I've been thinking about this. So I tell him the full face mask, because I breathe through my mouth while asleep, and the full face mask might help to reduce problems with that. So I slip it over my face, and I feel a gentle breeze pushing up into my mouth and nose. Oh, well, that's nice. Almost soothing. Pleasant. Ah! What the blazes was that? I scream, pulling off the mask. I gasp for breath as a rushing wind like something from a Category 5 hurricane or a Dyson vacuum cleaner was assaulting me. And the tech shrugs. I just turned it on. What do you mean you turned it on? I thought it was on. What was that gentle, soft air coming through? Oh, that was just the background cooling system. That was not the machine. Oh, no. Okay, fine. Well, then we'll just have to turn it down to a lower setting. I, I can't breathe through my mouth and nose when so much air is coming through. I was hyperventilating. Uh, no. No what? No, you can't turn it down. That's the lowest setting. Pull. No, no. 4 PSI, lowest setting. That makes no sense. Why start at that level when it will just adjust and go up as the night goes on anyway? Because 4 PSI has been determined to be the lowest pressure that is therapeutically beneficial. But why have it at 4 PSI while I'm still awake and trying to fall asleep? Why not ramp up from a comfortable 1 PSI? 
or below one PSI. I mean, remember, the disease is called sleep apnea. I need to fall asleep first before the machine can help. Hey, it is what it is. I can't do nothing about it. You want to try a different mask? Uh, sure, I guess. This one just goes over the nose. Ha! You look like an elephant with that mask and tube on, Dad! Roars my son with laughter. I shoo him away. I don't care what I look like. I just want a good night's sleep. And that is looking more and more unlikely at this point. The tech turns the machine on again. It's not quite so traumatic this time, since the vacuum cleaner load of air is just being pushed up my nose. I can still kind of gasp through my mouth, sounding like a beached porpoise. Is that better? asks the tech. Oh, loads, I say gasping. He misses a sarcastic tone entirely, or is maybe just ignoring it. Excellent. Then I guess you're going to be keeping it. What choice do I have, I mutter. Now I am left alone with the bloody machine. So as with any machine that is being used at home in a medically therapeutic fashion, this machine has no access to controls for you to adjust it. But I'm a hacker at heart. I immediately go to the web and look up the model number of the machine to find out how to get access to the actual controls on the thing. And after five minutes, I have it. Press this button, hold it down for five seconds, press this other button, and there is the doctor's menu. Excellent. And what do I discover when I look at the maximum and minimum pressures? First, I find out that 4 PSI actually is the lowest setting. The moron engineers who made this thing actually did not even consider allowing it to ramp up from something lower. The second thing I discover is that my doctor had the highest pressure of the night set at 20 PSI. That is close to the pressure of the tires on your car. Imagine that blowing up your nose at 3 a.m., folks. I thought 4 PSI was completely nuts. What would 5 times that pressure be like? Well, it was moot, because I have yet to find out. Listeners, I can't do it. I, I cannot get used to being blasted in the face with air while I am trying to fall asleep. It is quite literally a torture for me. Imagine somebody poking you continually as you try to fall asleep, and you will begin to feel my anguish. As far as I'm concerned, the cure is worse than the disease at this point. Okay, yes, I can hear some of you gasping out there who have shown such concern over my health. I'm not giving up. I am not thrilled with sleep apnea either. I'm doing several things which have been shown to be effective to ameliorate my problem. First, I will lose weight. I'm not hugely rotund, but I do need to lose probably 40 pounds. This will alter the morphology of my throat, and presumably it will be less likely to collapse during sleep. I have not been hugely motivated to lose weight until this point, but I guess now I have no choice. Second, I'm signing up at my wife's gym to get more exercise in during the week. This will help me to lose weight. Additionally, heavy exercise has been shown to reduce our need for sleep. Finally, I'm going to do one thing that's based on a research paper that I found in the literature. And yes, this is the first science story of the night, although it is several years old at this point. 
The paper is from 2010 from the journal Anesthesiology. It comes out of the lab of Yugo Taigato at uh, Tekyo University Chiba Medical Center in Japan. Taigato, who is an anesthesiologist, found that many of his patients with sleep apnea had lots of trouble breathing after surgery and before they woke up. He wanted to, quote, prevent reversal of pharyngeal airway obstruction in anesthetized patients with sleep apnea, unquote. He basically stated that this is a significant task assigned to anesthesiologists who are responsible for patient safety during post-operative periods. The solution was to test breathing of such patients after sitting them up at various angles in hospital beds. He stated that no study had ever assessed postural changes of pharyngeal airway dimensions during sleep and anesthesia. In short, nobody had looked at how sitting posture could affect sleep apnea. His group evaluated structural properties of each pharyngeal segment independently and successfully applied the methodology for assessing influences of various mechanical interventions on pharyngeal airway opening under general anesthesia and after operations when the general anesthesia was wearing off. They then compared static pharyngeal mechanics of the passive pharynx during lying down in a supine position to those during sitting postures, various sitting postures, of patients with sleep apnea. And essentially, they found that the postural changes from supine to sitting enlarged both the retropalatal and retroglossal airways and decreased pressures at both the pharyngeal segments at approximately 6 centimeters of water in patients with sleep apnea. Their results clearly demonstrate that structural properties of the passive pharynx improve while patients are in the sitting position, and they did not need to be completely sitting up. A 30% incline upwards from being on their backs actually helps significantly. What's the upshot of all this? Well, you can actually ameliorate breathing in someone with sleep apnea if they are not flat on their backs. Is this a cure? No. Will this help everyone? No, probably not. However, at least for me, I will be taking more naps in my big easy chair sitting up. Does this work for me? Maybe. I still snore, but my lovely wife says that when I am napping in my chair, she has not noticed my breathing interrupted. After all that, let me make this caveat. Just because the CPAP machine is a horror show for me, do not let me deter anyone from trying it themselves. You may not have the aversion to the thing that I do, so do not give up on it before you've even tried it. Thousands of people have found sleep relief with this machine. I am probably one of the few who fall at the edges of the bell curve. I have always been very sensitive to the conditions under which I fall asleep. Right temperature, humidity, bedclothes, etc., if you have sleep apnea, try the CPAP. Do not throw up your hands based on my very biased advice. Okay, here's the first actual story of the night. There have been four new elements in the periodic chart that have had no names for the last few years. And ta-da! Well, now those four new elements have names. In December, the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry officially recognized the discovery of elements 113, 115, 117, and 118, 
filling out the seventh row of the periodic table. As is traditional in chemistry, the naming rights go to the discoverers. Scientists at Riken in Wako, Japan, named Element 113, and a Russian-U.S. collaboration named the others. Element names have to follow certain rules, and that means no Element McElement face. Seriously, children, Boaty McBoat face? Come on. Anyway, in line with those conventions, the proposed names for the four elements are derived from scientist names and geographical locations of research institutes. After a five-month public review period and approval by IUPAC, the names will become official. Element 113 has been dubbed Nihonium and will sport the chemical symbol NH. The name comes from the Japanese word Nihon, or Land of the Rising Sun, the actual name for Japan. Element 115 will receive the moniker Moscovium, shortened to MC, after the Moscow region, home to the Joint Institute for Nuclear Research in Dubna, where the element was discovered in collaboration with researchers at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory and Oak Ridge National Laboratory. Oak Ridge Lab in Tennessee will also get a periodic table shout-out. The proposed name for element 117 is Tennessee, after the home state of Oak Ridge, Vanderbilt University, and the University of Tennessee. It will bear the symbol TS. Finally, the element 118 will be named Organesson, or OG, after Russian physicist Yuri Organesian, who contributed to the discovery of, well, several super-heavy elements. Next story. Much as I think it stinks, I fall into the category of the next story. And what is that? Well, apparently, one-third of the world's population can no longer see the Milky Way. I know the last time I saw it, I was in the big island of Hawaii last year. And even when I was in Peru earlier this year, I never saw the Milky Way. Certainly, Lima is a massive city with a great many lights. But scarily, even in northern Peru, in the mountains, in the relatively small town of Huaraz, in the Andes, there was enough light to efficiently block sky viewing. Where I live normally in northeastern New Jersey, 30 miles from New York City, you are lucky if you can see any stars at all, let alone the Milky Way. For more than a third of the Earth's population, the glare of artificial lights conceals this cosmic wonder from view. Dr. Fabio Falci and his colleagues reported all this in the June issue of the journal Science Advances. They estimate nearly 80% of North Americans and 60% of Europeans can no longer see the galactic core at night. Using a combination of satellite measurements and on-the-ground observation, Falci assembled the first global atlas of artificial sky luminance, recording light pollution from everything from streetlights to spotlights. Nearly four in five people worldwide live under light-polluted skies, the atlas reveals. Singapore boasts the brightest nights, with skies so luminous that no one living in Singapore can actually fully adapt to night vision. Nights are darkest in Chad, the Central African Republic, and Madagascar, where more than three-quarters of the inhabitants can gaze up at the stars under pristine viewing conditions. 
There was no mention in the article of New Jersey, but then again, I suspect we fall into that 80% of Americans who can no longer see the heavens. Sticking with space for the next story, well, sort of, scientists examine the quantum properties of photons sent to space and back again. Dr. Paolo Villaresi of the University of Padua and his team reported in the newest issue of Physical Review Letters that they beamed blips of light up to a satellite that reflected them back to Earth. When the photons returned, they observed a property known as quantum interference. That confirmed that the particle's quantum trace remained intact over that 5,000-kilometer space voyage. The technique could one day lead to quantum cryptography by satellite, allowing users to send snoop-proof encryption keys for encoding secret information. Villaresi says, quote, It's important for the sake of secure communication and the advancement of physics. But honestly, I think it's just plain cool, unquote. Quantum interference is a fact of life for retarding particles like photons. Just like ripples in a pond can interfere with one another, increasing or decreasing in height as they collide, quantum particles, which have wave-like properties, can interfere with themselves. This interference amplifies or diminishes the probability that a particle will appear at a particular time or place. Why is this abstruse stuff important? Answer, the new result indicates that quantum communication can work outside of pristine laboratory environments. Next story. Can copper be the answer to our dieting prayers? Maybe. A freshly minted study from the lab of Dr. Christopher Chang in the journal Nature Chemical Biology indicates that copper could help restore a natural way to burn fat. Copper, it turns out, can alter the balance of metabolic accounts through its influence on a biochemical signaling pathway. Chang of Lawrence Berkeley Laboratory says, quote, Using a mouse model of genetic copper misregulation in combination with pharmacological alterations in copper status and imaging studies, we found that copper regulates lipolysis, that's the breakdown of fat, at the level of the second messenger cyclic AMP by altering the activity of the cyclic AMP degrading phosphodiesterase, PDE3B, unquote. To establish a fat-copper link, Chang used mice with a genetic mutation that causes them to accumulate copper in their livers. And these mice have larger-than-average deposits of fat compared to normal mice. The altered mice essentially were a model for a human condition known as Wilson's disease, which is potentially fatal if left untreated. Analysis of the altered mice revealed that the abnormal buildup of copper was accompanied by lower-than-normal lipid levels in the liver compared with control mice. Researchers also found that the white fat of the altered mice had lower levels of copper compared with the control mice and correspondingly higher levels of fat. They then treated the altered mice with isoproteranol, a beta agonist known to induce the breakdown of fat into fatty acids through the cyclic AMP signaling pathway. They noted that the altered mice exhibited less fat breakdown activity compared to control mice. Chang then conducted cell culture analyses to clarify the mechanism by which the copper influences fat degradation. 
and he found that the copper binds to phosphodiesterase 3, and that's an enzyme that binds to cyclic AMP, halting its ability to facilitate the breakdown of fat. So you've got cyclic AMP, which breaks down fat, and you've got phosphodiesterase 3, which binds to cyclic AMP and halts its activity. Chang says, quote, when copper binds to phosphodiesterase, it's like a break on a break. That's why copper has a positive correlation with fat breakdown. We find that copper is essential for breaking down fat cells so that they can be used for energy. The more copper there is, the more fat is broken down. We think it would be worthwhile to study whether a deficiency in this nutrient could be linked to obesity and obesity-related diseases, unquote. Please, please, this is important. Do not go crazy taking copper pills. Chang cautions against ingesting copper supplements as a result of this study. Too much copper can lead to imbalances with other minerals like zinc. He finishes with, quote, Copper is not something the body can make, so we need to get it into our diet. The typical American diet, however, does not include many green leafy vegetables. Asian diets, for example, have many more foods that are rich in copper. Unquote. Okay, the final story of the night. Well, it's about sex, naturally. Well, all right, sort of about sex. Well, kind of. I still suggest that if you have any young kitties listening, you may want to stop now and listen later. This little discussion is really PG-13, not really R-rated. Dr. Yi Zhu of the University College of London says that the actual way that a voice sounds can lure women. He says that there are certain epitomized voice traits that suggest an attractive male. In a recent study in the journal Plus One, he analyzed the relationship between voice sound and what is attractive to the listener of the opposite sex. The results of Zhu's study suggest that the content of speech isn't everything. The voice itself carries information about the attractiveness of the speaker. Zhu says, quote, Earlier studies by Susan Hughes of Albright College reported more than a decade ago that appealing voices correlate with a more V-shaped upper body in men and a more hourglass-shaped women. Raters in her studies were able to decipher sex-specific body configurations of others simply by hearing a voice. Well, we've all got our biases. Is it likely that the owner of this voice is five foot four and 140 pounds? I uh, provide you with enhancement for your romantic evening. I don't want to disturb your thoughts. I don't want to disturb your mood. I try to, that's why my songs are so long. Or is it likely that the owner of this voice is six foot four and 220 pounds? Hello, this is Mike Tyson. I'm always, um, all my years as a young kid coming from um, the poorest neighborhoods in New York City, I never understood. Well, okay, there are exceptions. Another recent study in the journal Trends in Cognitive Science from the lab of Katarzynab Pizansky at the University of Sussex suggests less attention has been paid to body size and specific acoustic parameters. That is, what are the components of the voice that communicate its appearance? Pizansky recorded the voices of 700 people from Germany, Canada, and the UK as they spoke a series of vowels. 
By getting rid of the words, this allowed the researchers to isolate the voice's acoustics specifically, including pitch, formants, and uh, the elements of unevenness in voice called jitter and shimmer. I guess the more of either of those, the rougher or raspier the voice becomes. And then they observed how well these vocal aspects correlated with height, waist-to-hip, and chest-to-hip ratios, body mass index, and, well, other indicators of appearance. Pazanski says, quote, We found a more complex story than what we would have thought, unquote. Certain vocal features predicted body size and shape. Formants, which are measurements of resonance, are determined by the length of a speaker's vocal track. And Pazanski found that they were also the best correlates of a person's height and weight. That is, longer vocal track lengths, which lead to a more resonant voice, were more likely among taller and heavier individuals. A lower waist-to-hip ratio among women, as well as a higher chest-to-hip ratio among men, was also linked to higher levels of vocal perturbation, or roughness, what they called jitter and shimmer. This means that women with more masculine body shapes have smoother voices. Bazanski says, quote, This could hypothetically be due to relatively high levels of testosterone among these women, unquote. Overall, there were more vocal correlates of women's body proportions than men's. Given the nature of the study, it's impossible to explain why it was easier to predict women's proportions from voice, but Pazanski suspects it has to do with natural selection and communicating reproductive fitness. She says, quote, In terms of what we know about the importance of women's body shape, it would make more sense to have more information on height in men's voices and body shape in women's voices. Unquote. This is all very interesting. I suspect that hormones have a lot to do with how the voice develops. I mean, for example, higher testosterone is known to affect vocal cord development during puberty, and it's also related to lower pitch in men's voices. Zhu says, the trouble with trying to predict body size or shape from voice is that, quote, everybody is trying to cheat. We are all trying to project the ideal physique, and mostly unintentionally, our voices can lie. A short man can have a deep voice, while a woman with a boxy torso may be high-pitched and breathy, unquote. Zhu says some of this may be influenced by society and how we learn to speak, but cheating is mainly due to physiology, such as the short man getting a heavy dose of testosterone during puberty, which would help to lengthen his vocal cords and deepen his pitch. That's why the correlation between body shape and vocal parameters, even for the best ones, can be kind of low. Zhu finishes his article with, quote, All of these weak correlations between body shape and voice really raise the question of why we've evolved to pay attention to these things as strong indicators of body size, even though they're weak indicators, unquote. I suspect it's because we believe they are good indicators. You can change your voice. Zoo is absolutely correct. If you do it unconsciously, you could do an even better job consciously. I have known a couple of transgender individuals in my life, and they worked extraordinarily hard on their female voices, though they were born male. Based on voice, I would dare anybody to identify them as anything but natural females. They spent years getting pitch and breathiness and rhythm down until they sounded absolutely normal and no less feminine than your wife or mother, 
And no, not like RuPaul or like a drag queen. So as humans, we have been programmed to believe what we hear in a voice. And we constantly make judgment calls on what has been programmed into us by evolution. Sometimes we're right, and well, sometimes we're just plain wrong. That's all for me for now. As always, take care. Remember, do not go crazy with copper supplements. Give CPAP a chance. Voices aren't always honest. And I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Always a pleasure, James. Always a pleasure. I hope you're having a Jim sent sent actually that MP3 over quite a a couple of weeks ago. I think he's on holiday now, so I just want to wish him a fine holiday. Don't come over there. Well, you come over to the UK. Your money's worth gold over here now. You're going to be millionaires on these shows. So that is today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Like I say, strange times for the UK. Let's see if we can dig in and kind of pull ourselves out. Well, I'm sure we will. Great Britain, man. Great Britain. Until next week. Just like I say, good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.